If you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 17, and we've been enjoying right the middle here of Paul's second missionary journey, and he is in Greece, in the city of Athens today. We have a famous message today that the title of our sermon is The Sermon on Mars Hill. The Sermon on Mars Hill. This is Paul's famous sermon here in the book of Acts in Athens, Greece, and we're going to enjoy taking a couple of weeks to look at it. Today will be a part one, and then next week will be a part two, and we'll take a few weeks to look at Acts 17, 16 to 34. Uh, today, I'll just read the first part of that sermon, Acts uh, chapter 17, 16, probably down through verse 25, and then we'll jump into our time here together this morning. And so here's what we read. Luke writes, this, he says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the other devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of reading this incredible, inspired sermon given through the mouth of the Apostle Paul there in Athens, Greece. We pray that today you would help us as we look at this message, that we look at this passage of Scripture, that you would open our hearts and our minds to think about the glory of God in creating the heavens and the earth and the fact that you need nothing from any one of us, that you are totally sufficient in and of yourself God, thank you for the the privilege of studying, again, this passage. Open our hearts so that we can learn and put into application this week how we could be a stronger witness and a better ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, there was an old man who witnessed a burglary and appeared in court to identify the guilty party. The prosecutor questioned him, and, and he identified the defendant as the man who had, who had committed the crime. Now, it was the defense attorney's turn, and he said to the man, did you see my client commit this burglary? Yes, the old man said. I saw him as plain as day commit the crime. The lawyer added, this incident happened at night. Are you sure you saw my client commit the crime? 
Yes, I saw him do it, the old man replied. The lawyer then said, sir, you are 90 years old and your eyesight probably is not as good as it used to be. Just how far can you see at night? The old man said, I can see the moon at night. How far away is that? (laughs) Well, we all want proof in life, don't we? We simply don't want to just believe something because someone uh, says it to us. That's the science background that we're taught in school. We must have proof of something in order to really believe it. And the Bible does not offer formal arguments for God's existence. His existence is ultimately a matter of revelation and faith. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Saving faith is not a blind leap into the darkness though. It is founded upon fact. It is true that while God's existence is not provable in the scientific experiment or a mathematical equation type of way, it is still a rational and logical cause and effect thing to believe that God exists. The Bible reveals powerful and convincing evidence for God's existence. And we learn that in general revelation demonstrated externally, such as what we read about in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Internally, we know that man is created and that we have an inner being which is able to discern what Romans 1, 19 through 23 discusses for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in which things that have been made so that they are without excuse for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Well, this is clearly exactly what's going on in the city of Athens. As all men do, these Athenians knew that God existed, but they did not honor him, and they did not give thanks to him. Instead, they were polytheistic and worshipped many gods and became futile in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they had become fools. As a Hellenized Jew, Paul had been exposed to Greek culture with its outstanding traditions in art and in philosophy. And Athens was at the center of that very culture. When it was in its prime, several centuries before Christ, it had been the greatest city in the world. Socrates, his brilliant student Plato, and Plato's student Aristotle, who was perhaps the greatest and most influential philosopher of all time, lived and taught here in the city of Athens. And speaking of philosophy and logic, the law of cause and effect argues for God's existence. Common sense dictates that every effect must have a cause, yet there cannot be an endless chain of such causes. Therefore, there must have been an uncaused first cause, something 
caused that, which caused that, which caused that, and then we had to say, well, wait a second, well, what was the very first cause? If we know it kind of set off a, 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 an event of dominoes, there must have been a very first uncaused cause. And theologians refer to this line of reasoning as the cosmological argument. This is what apologetics talk about. And an example of the cosmological argument, again, there had to be a first cause because you can ask somebody, well, what about what happened before then? And what about before the Big Bang? And what about before that? And what about before matter? You know, it's what we're getting at. There had to be a first cause. And that question kind of goes like this. Everything that begins to exist had a cause, the, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. You see, you guys are more intellectual than you knew. You're already giving the cosmological argument just by simply asking that question of origin. What was that first cause? And the Bible acknowledges this very principle that we're talking about in, in many verses, but one might just be Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, where the writer asserts, for every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. So in order to see the world as we see it, it had to get here somehow, and you either have to put your faith in an atheistic solution to that, what we know as evolution, or you can put your faith into God's answer to that, which was in the beginning, God created. And this is what we're talking about here. This verse is saying that a house requires an efficient cause, meaning that it would be absurd to think that somehow that you could put a pile of building materials in, a, in the path of a tornado and expect that chaotic storm to assemble a house. You know, I remember when this building was being built, I would look down from my office and see all of the, the boards and the roofs and the, the concrete trucks and all of the, you know, the, the, the things that were going on. And it took a lot of time and a lot of design just to put together this building. In the universe, it, how ludicrous would it be to imagine that the immensely complex universe in which we live had no efficient cause? To say it another way, a plan requires a planner. A program requires a programmer. And a design requires a designer. And since the world clearly evidences an intricate design, there must have been a designer. That is actually the essence of what apologists call the teleological argument, which states that order and useful arrangement in a system, in order for that to happen, there must be an intelligence and a purpose in the organizing cause. There must have been a God who is the master designer. In other words, the order and complexity of the universe could have been arisen by random chance. It couldn't have just happened randomly. The Bible presents that truth in Psalm 94.9 that says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? And he who formed the eye, does he not see? Again, we're talking about this second argument, the idea that with the complexity of the universe, it had to have risen, not through random chance, but by, again, a designer. And that verse talks about if someone can hear, it already came from someone who heard. If someone can see, that ability came from someone who could see. The verse is essentially saying, again, Psalm 94.9, is essentially saying that the ability to see and hear comes from one who has the ability to see and hear, or intelligence comes from intelligence, or moral judgment comes from a moral being. And to argue that they came from non-living matter is the height of irrational thinking and folly. 
This is really the confusion of what's going on in Athens, and this is how Paul approaches their line of thought as he begins to preach the truth of the gospel. Their polytheism had led to confusion, and so it was into conflicting philosophies and idolatry that Paul proclaims that the one true God not only exists, but that he can be known through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only real way to prove God is by looking to God, by proclaiming his word. And that's, that's exactly what Paul does in Athens. Here in Acts 17, we see Paul is on his second missionary journey. In verses 1 through 9 of this chapter, we look at how he spent some time in Thessalonica. And then we saw in verses 10 through 15 how he spent some time in Berea. And then in verse 15, we see that he was brought to Athens and he would wait until Silas and Timothy could join him. And while he's in Athens, we see this extraordinary evangelistic opportunity for him to preach and a powerful message. And so I've divided this passage of scripture into three headings that you see there on your outline. We'll look at the second this morning, verses 16 to 21. Then we'll get started with the sermon, verses 22 through 31. I just read 22 to 25 to you this morning. And then we'll see the summary next week as well, verses 32 through 34. So let's start with number one, the setting of Athens here, verse 16. The city was full of idols. Your first blank is the word idols. The city was full of idols. Again, now while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting again for Silas and he's waiting for Timothy to join him there in Athens. They had been left behind in Berea. So while he's waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Luke provides a look at the city of Athens before focusing attention on Paul's sermon there at the Areopagus. And this sermon serves in as, as an example of how Paul evangelized Gentiles who had virtually no background in the scriptures. So we're going to see he approached at Pentecost in Acts 2, largely a Jewish audience there in Jerusalem. He approaches them primarily through Old Testament passages, assuming they already believed in the existence of God and they already believed somewhat in creation. But now that he's in a Gentile audience in, 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 a, in, in a Athens, he's going to approach this message differently, starting with God as creator himself. And so this sermon serves as an example, again, of how Paul evangelized Gentiles who who had virtually no background in the scripture at all. And so Athens, no doubt, had had a huge impact on the world at large. The glory of Greece from the days of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire was beginning at this time to fade. Even Athens, the proud center of Hellenism, was just past its bloom. At this time, Corinth had actually become the center of commerce and politics in Greece. And after achieving many impressive military victories, though, Athens flourished economically and culturally between the years of 480 and 404 BC. Politically, the citizens there had developed the first democracy, a city-state run by elected officials who were accountable to the people. Athens also boasted of important figures in almost every category of Western civilization. Great playwrights like Aeschylus, the father of tragedy, was there. Athens was home to the fathers of history, Herodotus and Thucydides, Hippocrates, on a, a, another 5th century Athenian, has been called the father of Western medicine. 
And one really can't talk about Athens without mentioning those famous philosophers I mentioned earlier, Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, who taught Plato, who taught Aristotle. And each one of these philosophical giants once graced this ancient city of Athens. Numerous artists also called Athens their home. The most celebrated in this era would have been Phidias, whose statue of Zeus was considered to be one of the wonders of the world. Phidias also designed the enormous majestic statue of Athena. Temples designed by other artists also lined the streets of the city with the most impressive building there being the famous Parthenon, which was completed around 432 BC. Now in every Greek city, the highest point of elevation housed a temple to some god or goddess, usually the patron god of that city. These locations were known as high cities, or to the Greeks, what's called the Acropolis, the idea of a city on a hill. And the high elevations gave visitors a feeling of supremacy and closeness to the gods. And Athens was no different as Greek cities were laid out that way. And Athena was the patron goddess of the city and her statue stood high inside the Parthenon. About 50 yards from the Parthenon was a little hill about 50 feet high and about 150 yards long. And on it, a temple was built to the Greek god of war. His name was Ares. And Ares corresponded to the Roman god of war named Mars. So the Areopagus, their their, uh, council that ran the city, met right there on the Areopagus, also called Mars Hill. In Greek, again, the idea behind Ares in Roman history, our religion thought of as Mars, so Mars Hill became this place where Paul preached this famous sermon. If you've ever been to Athens, I dare say you've been there. You've obviously been to the Parthenon. You've been up on top of the Acropolis. You can see across a statue or the Temple of Zeus, and there right next to it is this big Rock Hill, and that would be Mars Hill. Lisa and I were able to be there years ago. We led a team mission trip to Albania, and we had a a layover in uh, Greece, in Athens, for a couple days on the way back, and it was just amazing to see the outline of this incredible city. In fact, Athens, even then, was a beautiful, striking, majestic city, and Paul had surely heard about this city even as a boy growing up there in verse 16 as he's just kind of strolling through the streets. I'm sure he probably had a lot of thoughts of, of different, uh, what, you know, what he thought Athens may be like. Maybe he had been there before, who knows, but he's kind of walking through the street, checking out the lay of the land, waiting on his companions to found him, and how would he respond to such grandeur and history? How would he introduce Christ among such competing worldviews? And even though Athens was the home of pagan Greek philosophy, would it be welcome to divine revelation from the city of Jerusalem? And rather than viewing Athens from the perspective of a tourist, Paul saw Athens as a city full of lost men and women, doomed to a Christless eternity. Paul wasn't there to see the art exhibits. He wasn't there to admire the architecture. He wasn't there to see the sights. He wasn't there to learn of the latest rage of world philosophy. He wasn't there to be amused. Paul was there to preach Christ. And we see that this polytheistic culture of Athens, it actually, according to verse 16, it provoked Paul to do something about it. 
Notice he's not walking around the streets like, oh man, look at that temple. Look at that. Oh, there's some nice food over here. What a beautifully culturally diversified city. No, as he walked around, he was provoked within him. That word is what described what Jesus felt when he was moved with tears and anger when he saw what was happening in Jerusalem. In a similar way, Paul was provoked when he saw the confusion about the worship and the other gods that were being worshipped there in Athens. This word provoked literally means to become angry or infuriated. It's the same word that was also used earlier in our study of that sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. And Paul is provoked because he hated idolatry. He, he knew that idolatry was confusing to mankind, distracting him for what he was created to do, to worship the true God of heaven and earth. In fact, Isaiah 42.8 says, this is Isaiah recording the words of God. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. How should we as Christians interact with a similar pluralistic society today? How should we approach this similar opposition we see today? I know that when Josh taught about a month ago, we talked about idols, and we, and we started to study a little bit in that passage from Isaiah about idols of the heart. And even though we may not live, you know, here in Santa Clarita, there's not tons of idols everywhere, but all you got to do is drive down to L.A., and you'll see them everywhere, right? There's the Buddhist temple next to Grace Community Church. There's all kinds of things uh, in our culture, and certainly around the world, we know in Asia, Africa, there's idols everywhere. And for us, a lot of us, we would have idols of the heart, right? Things that we struggle with, desires that we have, things that we tend to put our trust and our hope in. And so how, as we kind of look at Paul confronting his culture, how should we confront our culture? And it starts with being provoked. It starts with just with really taking a look at the lay of the land and getting fired up and getting, realizing that, you know what, God's called us to be salt and light in this community, at my place of work, at my school, and I don't want to just kind of assume and just accept everything as is. I want to make a dent. I want to be a light. I want to cut into and cut across the grain, so to speak, as I try to live my life for Christ. And that's exactly what we see Paul do. He took it all in, verse 16, and now we see verse 17, your next blank, the work of an evangelist, the work of an evangelist. So what was Paul doing? This catches you by no surprise. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul is ready to get to work. He is focusing his energy on those in the synagogue and on those at the marketplace. And so we see here that Paul is going to be a witness to those inside the spiritual establishment and he's going to be a witness to those outside of the spiritual establishment. In fact, many have said that the greatest need for evangelism in our time is the people in the church. Because there's so many in the church today, and I'm talking about the church at large, who kind of like the Jews had some type of religious background, but they had not truly repented and served Christ. And so just like Paul would start in the synagogue and then go to the marketplace, when we think about evangelism today, I think that would serve us well, that we first start evangelizing in our own churches. In fact, I, I reviewed a book that I had read a few years ago this week 
on evangelism put out by Nine Marks, and in it, the author gave a warning of what would happen if a church did not understand biblical evangelism and practice it at home first in their own church. Here's what the author says. He says, if we don't practice healthy evangelism in our own church, the dominoes start to fall. The focus of preaching and teaching turns to living a moral life, not a gospel-centered life. Non-Christians are lulled into thinking that they are okay in their lost state. Christians think that non-Christians are believers because they made a superficial outward commitment. The church baptizes those who are not true believers. The church allows non-Christians into its membership. Eventually, non-Christians become leaders in the church. And before you know it, a church becomes a subculture of nominalism. That's really what's happened in all the liberal denominations in our day. You think about so many of them, they've walked away from the gospel, they've accepted the teaching of the world, they've embraced unrepentant sin as as being okay in the eyes of God, and they've stopped preaching Christ as the only way to heaven. And so many of the churches have been given over. There's only maybe a few mainline denominations like the Southern Baptist, probably the PCA, the Presbyterian Reformed Church of America, there are probably some smaller denominations, but it just seems like, by and large, the majority of denominations have given themselves over to that kind of mentality. And the conclusion that the author gives is this. He says, unbiblical evangelism is a method of assisted suicide for a church. So there is much at stake in getting evangelism right. This is why Paul was reasoning first in the synagogue. He was discussing the truths of God's word with whoever would listen. And as was his custom, again, he began in the synagogue on the Sabbath, reasoning with his fellow Jews. And then the rest of the week, he would be in the marketplace where the people of the city lived. And so Paul is waging spiritual warfare, again, on these two fronts, the synagogue and the supermarket. In a synagogue, he no doubt used his normal approach, proving from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And in that particular synagogue were Jews, and verse 17 says that there were other God-fearing Gentiles, devout men and women, referring again to God-fearing Gentiles. And in, in the marketplace which was the center of civic life, there were plenty of philosophers who would debate various worldviews, and Paul reasoned with all of them. It reminds me of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort and complete, uh, with complete patience and teaching. That's the attitude Paul had. He's just going to go after it. Every day being faithful, every day proclaiming the gospel, both at church, if you will, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath, and in the marketplace during the week. We see the work of an evangelist never stops. You're never off duty. You're never not thinking about how can I exalt Christ and lead others to know him. And that's what Paul's doing here. And now let's look at verse 18, and we see your next blank there, the mindset of the culture. The mindset of the culture, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
Well, there seem to be two philosophies mentioned here in verse 18, here at the very top of the Athenian culture. The first was that Epicurean philosophy. Epicureans were followers of a philosopher named Epicurus who taught that pleasure and not the pursuit of knowledge is the chief end of life. And according to Epicurus, the chief goal in life is to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and a minimum amount of pain. James Montgomery Boyce described the Epicurean mindset when he said, we use the word Epicurean to refer to a person who is a mere hedonist, but the Epicureans were not quite hedonists in our sense. Hedonists abandoned themselves to pleasure. The Epicureans did not do that exactly. They sought a balance between pain and pleasure. Nevertheless, they were pure materialists. They said, in effect, this life is all there is. You only go around once, so if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, then stay away from it. Avoid what hurts. Sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? You may not walk around saying, I'm an Epicurean, because a lot of uh, Americans don't really care a whole lot about philosophy. Each is a man of his own making with, with his own thoughts, but you certainly heard that before. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. That's an Epicurean type of philosophy. The second type of philosophy that's mentioned here in verse 18 is the Stoics. Stoics were pantheists, that means they believe God is in everything, who, who believed that, that wisdom was found in being free from intense emotion, unmoved by joy or grief, and being willingly submissive to natural law. A Stoic's mindset says this, I can't control everything that is going on out there and things are going to happen to me that I will not like, but I am still in charge of myself. Therefore, I'm going to stand tall, stick out my chin and take whatever comes. And there are plenty of people who are Stoics as well around us today. They are people who have no, no sense of a divine presence or of divine guidance in their lives. They just do the best that they can. If bad things come, they'll just hang on and try to be strong and endure through it. No, no emotion, flat responses to everything, and they just shrug off everything as if nothing really even matters. And notice that Paul's philosophy cuts right into both of those, to the Epicurean philosophy and to the Stoic philosophy. Paul has a philosophy, and his philosophy is to preach Christ and the resurrection. Notice in verse 18, it doesn't talk about how he got into these deep arguments, even though we could show you how he did use a cosmological and teleological argument. He's just saying, you know, I'm just going to preach Christ. I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. That's what the end of verse 18 says. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He wasn't preaching moralism. He was not preaching seven steps to success. He wasn't preaching on how you can have your best life now. He was teaching the gospel, and you might say that he wasn't exactly being seeker-sensitive. They thought that he was a babbler. What they say there in verse 18, who is this babbler? That word literally could be translated as a seed picker. The term describes someone who, like a bird picking up seeds, took some learning here. You've seen a bird pick up seeds, right? Peck, peck over here, a little bit over here, a little bit over there, just kind of randomly picking up some learning, they thought. Paul picked up some learning here and there, and then he kind of passed it off as if this was his own, and they thought he must be uneducated. Well, we know that Paul actually had a robust theological education with Gamaliel, 
Others remarked, he seems to be advocating, verse 18 says, these foreign gods. And this, this response was due to their inability to actually grasp Paul's doctrine of Christ and the resurrection. It was totally foreign to their thinking. And can I ask you this morning, what kind of evangelism are you doing in your surroundings? Because I imagine that if you're preaching Christ and him crucified, that you're going to sound a lot like Paul. And people are going to think, what are you talking about? Do people really believe that today? Why would you wait until marriage? Why don't you affirm homosexuality? Why would you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you really believe that? Where are you even getting this from? To which hopefully you could say, I'm getting it from God's word. I'm not making this up. I'm just telling you who God is. And that's where we see that Paul's going. And I'm just asking you, what are you doing in your evangelizing? Again, I'm, I'm all for being educated. I'm all for having good arguments. I'm all for being up on current events. I'm just more interested in Christ than any of those things. <laughs> that's, that's what my passion is. Why I became a preacher for crying out. I just want to talk about Jesus. And if you give up your career, you can do it too. You can just, just talk about Jesus all day, every day. And that's what Paul is doing. He's preaching Christ. That's what we see from Peter back in, and Peter and John back in Acts 4, where the people were uh, greatly annoyed. Acts 4, 2 says they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. I love how Paul says it in Galatians 6, 14, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which by, uh, which, uh, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what he's saying. He's like, look, I just preach Christ. That's what I boast in. I'm, I'm dead to the world. I'm dead to the world's interest. I don't really want to get on the, the level of the world. I just want to preach Christ. And so as he's doing that there in Athens, Others remarked, he seems to be advocating, again, these foreign gods. Uh, they don't know what to do with him. And so then we see your next couple of verses, 19 through 21, says the opportunity of a lifetime. The opportunity of a lifetime. Verses 19 to 21, and they took him and brought him into the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what, of the, what these things mean. Now, all Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. So here's an opportunity of a lifetime. The, the Areopagus that's mentioned here in the Greek culture was kind of like the Sanhedrin in the Hebrew culture. In fact, the Supreme Court today in Greece is still called the Areopagus. Uh, the Areopagus is also the name of the hill that we mentioned where they would meet. It is right next to the Parthenon, on which was the, where the Acropolis is. This other hill, Mars Hill, uh, is where we're, we're talking about this name came from. And so this hill is the Areopagus. It's where they met. Again, we talked about how uh, we're going to call it Mars Hill. It's kind of become more famed as that term in the evangelical world today. And the council would meet there, and they would talk and discuss, and the council basically had the power to provide oversight over religion and education. So this is kind of their department. So they, they know there's new guys in town. He's proclaiming things they've never heard. And they said, we got to get the council together. We need to hear this guy to see what it is that we think about what it is that he's saying. They're very curious to hear about what was said. That they apparently had never heard the gospel and they wanted to know more about this new teaching that Paul was presenting. 
just want to make sure you know the gospel message of Christ and the resurrection was completely strange in their ears. They, they didn't know what it meant and they didn't even know why it mattered. And they wanted to know more. The Athenians and foreign residents loved to debate the latest ideas. And somehow they had time in their culture. They must have put away their money, Todd, and invested it earlier in life. And they could just sit around at this point. That's from a quipping hour if you were with us. But they must, they're just sitting around and that's just what they wanted to do all day long, right? They wanted to talk about something new. That's what interests them as part of their culture, part of their dialects, part of what they did. And the problem is, is that they would potentially think that new might be better. Oh, there's something we haven't heard. Maybe we want to hear about this. But you've got to understand this morning that new is not always better. Some things are simply unchanging. And the gospel is an unchanging old message. It cannot be edited, expanded, or updated. R.C. Sproul shares the story of how a man got his PhD in New Testament with the thesis that Jesus was the founder of a psychedelic mushroom cult. Apparently, the doctrinal candidate thought it was a good idea to put a new twist on the gospel. But on this attempt, R.C. Sproul wisely commented, that is new, but it is also ridiculous. Right? I mean, new ideas often are ignoring the real truth from the Bible. Be careful then in the overemphasizing of new things. Remember that the gospel is the old, old story that has the power to truly give people new life. If we change it, we destroy it. The Athenians didn't need some new philosophy. What they needed was a new heart and eternal life. They, they didn't need new ideas. They needed new life. And people today love to watch the daily news and they love to listen to new music and new movies and the newest clothing styles and the newest discoveries. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of, of things that are interesting, but is that what your life is about? Because when it comes back to the gospel, Paul is going to root this message in the past. And he's not going to say, hey, this is something new that we just came up with, that's some modern idea, because he's going to begin his sermon going back to the very beginning of time. New is not always better. In fact, those of us who've been in the church for any number of times, uh, amount of time, should know that you should be on great guard. If somebody's like, oh, did you hear about this new, this new theology of Paul? Do you hear about this new view that God doesn't really know the future and he can't really, I mean, it's like all this stuff that comes out, just like, that's wrong. That, wait, is it new? That's wrong. Is it new? Yeah, that's wrong. It, it, it just can't, it's, it can't, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And there's nothing new that would add to God's word. And this is where we transition now, this famous sermon moving from the, the setting of what, what's going on and the table is set. Now he jumps into the sermon. And this sermon by Paul, I would say, is a fabulous uh, study for us to do. And that's why we're going to take a couple of weeks. We'll get through half of it today, the first two points of his four-part sermon, verses 22 through 31. And really, the first point, you could just say this, it's, it's all about the greatness of God. He is the creator. Your next blank there. It's all about this first point, four-point sermon, the creator God. It's all about the greatness of God. He is the creator, verses 22 through 24. So here we have Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, saying, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this 
I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Every thinking person asks, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Scientists attempt to answer, where did I come from? But their best answer is that you came from the Big Bang, and then you came, as a human, from monkeys. Philosophy wrestles with, well, why am I here? The Epicureans, who were atheists, said that all was matter, and matter always was. The Stoics said that everything was God, the spirit of the universe. They say that God did not create anything. He only organized matter and impressed on it some type of law or order. Really, only the Christian faith has a satisfactory answer to all three questions. And Paul starts by answering that first one, where did I come from? And notice again that Paul is very aware of his surroundings. In many ways, he has a brilliant introduction where he talks about, hey, look, I've been walking through your city. I've noticed that you have even an altar to the unknown God. And he's like, ah, that's my hook right there when I get my chance. And then they ask him, come in over to Mars Hill and tell us what you're about. He said, hey, I want to proclaim to you about that God, that God that y'all don't know about. That's the God I want to tell you about. And he begins this four-part sermon. And Paul began, again, by just acknowledging that they were very religious. The words very religious here in the original language comes from two words, meaning to revere or fear deities or evil spirits. And the second word, meaning firm or hard. The idea, very religious, is that Athenians were firm and rigid in their reverencing of their deities of these various gods. But Paul is hinting at the fact that their deities were actually evil spirits or demons, not gods. And we know that behind the idols, that demons are at work. But when he says you're very religious, by the terminology he uses, he's saying, yeah, you're very firmly held to these other spirits could be even thought of as demons. And so the the Athenians who feared they might overlook a particular God and did not know about that God decided to raise up the altar to the unknown God. And when Paul again saw this, he did not emphasize so much the altar, but the fact that they were ignorant to the true and living God. Notice how Paul doesn't try to debate now that he's going to start talking about creation he just declares it's true and I would say that all effective evangelism starts with God and it starts with us just proclaiming that God is the creator you don't have to take you know if you had a few minutes with a friend you don't have to spend all your time on philosophy and then you barely if ever even get to the bible you could just start if you wanted like Paul started and just say hey you know what God created the heavens and the earth That's what Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's Psalm 24-1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Isaiah 45-18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. These verses are just reminding us again of the proclamation that God is the creator and the truth that God is the creator of the universe and all it contains is just as unpopular in our day. 
It's unpopular in Paul's day. It's unpopular in our day. You know that the prevailing explanation of the ungodly unbelievers today would be that of evolution. And unfortunately, evolution is both taught zealously and dogmatically, and it is assumed and accepted as a fact even though we know it's not. It's at best a hypothesis. It couldn't really be even labeled as a theory, and yet it's accepted today in the public school system and in universities around our nation and the world as a fact. And there is impressive scientific evidence that goes against evolution. There is the second law of thermodynamics, this law, which is one of the best well-known established principles of all of science states that the natural tendency is to go from a more ordered to a less ordered state. And everyone well, every uh, well-known atheist, atheistic scientist has stated, I should, let me restate that, even one well-known atheistic scientist has stated, as far as we know, all changes are in the direction of increasing entropy of increasing disorder and of increasing randomness and of running down. So what we're talking about is, again, the second law of thermodynamics. It is simply affirming that things move from more energy to less energy, from more order to less order, from more organization to less organization, from more, from, from really every, all things over time deteriorate. That's what the law of second... Thermo, the second law of thermodynamics is actually stating. And yet, incredibly, evolutionists argue precisely the opposite of, of, of what is happening. According to them, things have gone from a less ordered state to a more ordered state. And attempts to harmonize evolution with the second law of thermodynamics has been a complete failure. And this law continues to be a powerful argument against evolution. Now, another powerful argument against evolution is simply the lack of evidence in the fossil record. The only way to determine if macroevolution, changing from species to species, has happened is to examine the fossil record, which contains the history of life on Earth. And although the fossil record is presented in popular literature and textbooks, even as proof of evolution... You know, if you open up your science textbook, it's going to show all these fossils. And then if you start to look at it more carefully, it's like, oh, it's dot, 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 dot. You know, and they, they draw it the form. It's like, this is what we have, dot, dot, dot. Here's the whole monkey. You know, this is what we have. Here's a half monkey, half man, dot, dot, dot. You know, and it's like, well, what, what are you guys doing? Like, actually, that evidence goes against what you're saying because of its lack of transitional forms. We just simply don't have uh, a, a collection of transitional fossils from one to another. And, of course, they come up with all kinds of arguments against that, punctu punctuated equilibrium instead of gradualism. And we could just talk and talk and talk all day long. But the bottom bottom argument is you just really don't have proof. You just don't. And you can, you can make it look like whatever you want to make it look like, but to find out where we come from, we can't really look to science. We have to look to God. And Paul's affirmation that God made the world and all things in it find support in the scriptures. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 146, verses 5 through 6, the psalmist says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Jeremiah 10, 12 says of God, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. The New Testament also teaches that God is the creator. In Ephesians 3, 9, it says God created all things. Colossians that we read this morning, verses 16 and 17 of chapter one, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Revelation 4, 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 10, 6, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. I mean, all these verses really just overpower us at the, the clear teaching of the Bible that God is indeed the creator of all. And this is what proclaiming God as creator does. You know, before you let them just say, well, I don't believe that. You just keep going. That's what I do. I just keep going. Name another verse, another concept, because as soon as they say, well, I don't believe that, then you're like, uh, well, what do you believe? And then you start to get into these arguments. And so I try to get a little traction. Hey, you approach it however you want. But sometimes I just try to get a little traction because as I'm hitting these big, powerful, sweeping statements the Bible gives us of creation, you know what it does to our pride and our ability and our human uh, way of reasoning? It's kind of, oh, Man, it's like, man, I don't have a lot. To, I can't come back against that. You know, it's like, this is, this is God showing himself to Job when Job was talking about, well, where was God when I went through all this time and this difficulty and all these, these uh, horrible things happened in my life. And at the end of that book, we're talking about this in Mighty Man this week, but at the end of, the, at the end of that book, God sits Job down. And he says, hey, Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Tell me if you know. Job, where, where were you when I told the oceans they could go this far and no further? Job, where were you when the mountain goats gave birth? Job, where were you? And the obvious answer is like, well, I wasn't there. And he's like, then shut up. There it is. That's two weeks in a row my wife told me don't say shut up in the pulpit. So <clears throat> I got to pull that back, right? You know, but he's saying, basically, who are you to talk to God because you weren't there? He was there. And when we maximize our emphasis on creation, it begins to humble mankind to say, you know what, you weren't there. And we begin to proclaim God's word. It humbles us. Creator God humbles our approach to this whole argument. And it gives us the opportunity just to say what it is that God wants us to say, which is what he's told us in scripture. More truth about who he is than going into the great depths of philosophy. It really reminds us that God is greater than us, that he is infinitely wiser than us, and that he is eternal. And because God created all, the, ver the rest of verse 24 says that he's the Lord of all. You see that in verse 24? He says, well, God made the world and everything in it, and now, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's hinting at the fact he created it, He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's, he's, he's master. He's over all. He rules over all. He is the rightful ruler as creator. 
you don't have a creator, you don't have a ruler, you can rule yourself. If there is a creator, you have to submit to that creator who gives us law and order and rules us through what he's created and he rules us through his word and he rules over the affairs of men and he rules over the government and he rules over morality and he rules over philosophy and he rules over the economy and he rules over any democracy and he rules over your marriage and he rules over your boss and he rules over your teacher and everything in our world because he created the world. And we can just be reminded, he's Lord of all. He created it. He's Lord of all. I'm going to submit to that. And I want to listen to what he has to say because he is dominant. I am not. Just a whole frame of thinking of just, of just saying, boom, there's God. He created the world. And we already know that they know that's true based on what we looked at in Genesis 1, that they know there's a creator and they're trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness so they don't have to give an account to the creator and so they can just live life however they want. But God is creator. And Genesis 14, 19 describes that it's God who possesses the heavens and the earth. David said in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. The pagan king of Babylon even acknowledged God's power as he was humbled by God's judgment when he says, Daniel 4, 34 and 35, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion and his everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and does, and he does according to his will among the host of, of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to him or say to him, uh, what have you done? In other words, even the mightiest man on the earth at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire, said, you know, I'm nothing. God showed himself to him, and he realized that it's God's dominion, it's God's kingdom. The God who created the universe, obviously, then, does not dwell, the rest of 24, does not dwell in temples made by man. God, who created the heavens and the earth, needs a little house, a room, a temple, something that you've decorated and built with your own hands. God doesn't dwell in a temple like that, even though God commanded Solomon to build a temple. And it was a beautiful temple. And they paid homage to God, worshiped God, killed thousands of animals. And it was very ornate, very decorated. Even in 1 Kings 8, as they're dedicating the temple to God, says 1 Kings 8, 27, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So we understand that. God is omnipresent. And yes, he chose to have part of his presence, if you will, in the Holy of Holies, hovering over the, the mercy seat of the wings of the cherubim. And that was part of what was celebrated of the holiness of God. And yet even then, he says, no, he's over the heavens and he's over the earth and he, he will not be contained in that which is built by man. And being part of what we're learning again is, is that God doesn't dwell holistically, specifically in any one place at one time. He certainly doesn't reside in these temples that were built for the gods of Athens. He's not limited to a temple built by man. It's, it's Psalm 139, verses 7, and 10, uh, 7 through 10, that reminds us that God is present everywhere. Where, where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, and even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I mean, hopefully Paul's first point of this sermon encourages you today. The whole earth is a theater of God's creation. And no matter where you are in your life today, you can be reminded of that and you can be encouraged by that. And you can proclaim that with confidence, with total dependence on God and the Bible. He created you. He's the Lord over your life. And if you're in Christ again this morning, that that ought to give us great encouragement. It ought to give us a great reminder of the, of the way that we could approach our particular culture. Well, we didn't even get to get to point two. So that's point one of his sermon. Next week, we'll pick up here where we left off. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at the beauty and the power and the wonder and the majesty of you as our great creator. And God, I, I, I confess that I believe that at times I've been ashamed to just declare that truth without apology. I've thought at times I needed to somehow doctor that up or present it in a more human way than just proclaiming the truth. Of course, we wanna get to proclaiming Christ and the gospel, but we see in this passage how powerful the proclamation of your truth from your word about creation, the impact it has on our person, the impact it has on our pride, the way it humbles us and causes us to come under your holy power, your creative ability, your eternal rule, your lordship over all. Just pray that as we contemplate, think about what it is that we're learning, that we would sharpen some of our evangelistic opportunities and that we would be quicker to uh, just depend on you and to know that your word carries life. So that would be what we proclaim as we point people to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.